Section 4 of Movies and Hollywood Short Story Collection, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Cliff Thompson. Mrs. Bathurst by Rudyard Kipling. From Leiden's Irenaeus, Act Three, Scene Two. Gow. Had it been your prince instead of a groom caught in this noose, there's not an astrologer of the city, prince. Sacked! Sacked! We were a city yesterday, Gow. So be it. But I was not governor, not an astrologer, but would have sworn he'd foreseen it at the last versary of Venus, when Vulcan caught her with Mars in the house of stinking Capricorn. But since tis Jack of the Straw that hangs, the forgetful stars had it not on their tablets. Prince. Another life? Were there any left to die? How did the poor fool come by it? Gow. Simpliciter, thus. She that damned him to death knew not that she did it, nor would have died ere she had done it, for she loved him. He that hangs him does so in obedience to the duke, and asks no more than, where is the rope? The duke, very exactly, he hath told us, works God's will, in which holy employ he is not to be questioned. We have then left upon this finger only Jack, whose soul now plucks the left sleeve of destiny in hell, to overtake why she clapped him up like a fly on a sunny wall. Woof! Saw! Prince. Your cloak, Ferdinand. I'll sleep now. Ferdinand. Sleep, then. He, too, loved his life. Gow. He was born of woman. But at the end threw life from him, like your prince, for a little sleep. Had I any look of a king, said he, clanking his chain, to be so baited on all sides by fortune, that I must e'en die now to live with myself one day longer? I left him railing at fortune and woman's love. Ferdinand. Ah, woman's love. Aside. Who knows not fortune, glutted on easy thrones, stealing from feasts as rare to coney-catch privily in the hedgerows for a clown, with that same cruel, lustful hand and eye, those nails and wedges, that one hammer and lead, and the very gerb of long-stored lightnings loosed yesterday gainst some king. Mrs. Bathurst. The day that I chose to visit HMS Peridot in Simon's Bay was the day that the Admiral had chosen to send her up the coast. She was just steaming out to sea as my train came in, and since the rest of the fleet were either coaling or busy at the rifle ranges a thousand feet up the hill, I found myself stranded, lunchless, on the seafront with no hope of return to Cape Town before 5 p.m. 
At this crisis, I had the luck to come across my friend Inspector Hooper, Cape Government Railways, in command of an engine and a brake van chalked for repair. If you get something to eat, he said, I'll run you down to Glengariff siding till the goods come along. It's cooler there than here, you see. I got food and drink from the Greeks who sell all things at a price, and the engine trotted us a couple of miles up the line to a bay of drifted sand and a plank platform half buried in sand not a hundred yards from the edge of the surf. Molded dunes, whiter than any snow, rolled far inland up a brown and purple valley of splintered rocks and dry scrub. A crowd of Malays hauled at a net beside two blue and green boats on the beach. A picnic party danced and shouted barefoot where a tiny river trickled across the flat, and a circle of dry hills, whose feet were set in sands of silver, locked us in against a seven-colored sea. At either horn of the bay, the railway line, cut just above the high water mark, ran round a shoulder of piled rocks and disappeared. You see, there's always a breeze here, said Hooper, opening the door as the engine left us in the siding on the sand and the strong southeaster, buffeting under Elsie's peak, dusted sand into our ticky beer. Presently he sat down to a file full of spiked documents. He had returned from a long trip up country, where he had been reporting on damaged rolling stock as far away as Rhodesia. The weight of the bland wind on my eyelids the song of it under the car roof and high up among the rocks, the drift of fine grains chasing each other musically ashore, the tramp of the surf, the voices of the picnickers, the rustle of Hooper's file and the presence of the assured sun joined with the beer to cast me into magical slumber. The hills of False Bay were just dissolving into those of fairyland when I heard footsteps on the sand outside and the clink of our couplings. Stop that, snapped Hooper, without raising his head from his work. It's those dirty little Malay boys, you see. They're always playing with the trucks. Don't be hard on them. The railway's a general refuge in Africa, I replied. Tis, up country at any rate. That reminds me. He felt in his waistcoat pocket. I've got a curiosity for you from Wankies. Beyond Belawayo, it's more of a souvenir, perhaps, than... The old hotel's inhabited, cried a voice. White men from the language. Marines, to the front! Come on, Pritch, here's your Belmont. Why? The last word dragged like a rope as Mr. Pycroft ran round to the open door and stood looking up into my face. Behind him, an enormous sergeant of Marines trailed a stalk of dried seaweed and dusted the sand nervously from his fingers. What are you doing here? I asked. I thought the Hierophant was down the coast. Oh, we came in last Tuesday from Tristan Dokken for overhaul, and we shall be in dockyard ends for two months with boiler seatings. Come and sit down. Hooper put away the file. This is Mr. Hooper of the railway, I exclaimed, as Pycroft turned to haul up the black-mustached sergeant. Ah, uh, this is Sergeant Pycroft of the Agaric, 
an old shipmate, says he. We were strolling on the beach. The monster blushed and nodded. He filled up one side of the van when he sat down. And this is my friend Mr. Pycroft, I added to Hooper, already busy with the extra beer which my prophetic soul had bought from the Greeks. Moi aussi, quoth Pycroft, and drew out beneath his coat a labeled quart bottle. Why, it's bass, cried Hooper. It was Pritchard, said Pycroft. They can't resist him. Well, that's not so, said Pritchard mildly. Not verbatim, perhaps, but the look in the eye came to the same thing. Where was it? I demanded. Oh, just beyond here, at Calk Bay. She was slapping a rug in a back veranda. Pritch hadn't more than brought his batteries to bear before she stepped indoors and sent it flying over the wall. Pycroft patted the warm bottle. Oh, it was all a mistake, said Pritchard. I shouldn't wonder if she mistook me for McLean. Oh, we're about of a size. I had heard householders of Mutzenberg, St. James, and Calk Bay complain of the difficulty of keeping beer or good servants at the seaside, and I began to see the reason. Nonetheless, it was excellent bass, and I too drank to the health of that large-minded maid. It's the uniform that fetches em, and they fetch it, said Pycroft. My simple navy blue is respectable, but not fascinating. Now Pritch, in his number one rig, is always pure merry on the terrace. Ex officio, as you might say. Oh, she took me for McLean, I tell you, Pritchard insisted. Why, why, to listen to him, you'd think it only yesterday. Ah, Pritch! said Pycroft. Be warned in time. If we begin telling what we know about each other, we'll be turned out of the pub, not to mention aggravated desertion on several occasions. Never anything more than absence without leaf. I defy you to prove it, said the sergeant hotly. And if it comes to that, how about Vancouver in 87? Or well, how about it? Who pulled bow in the gig going ashore? Who told Boy Niven? Surely you were court-martialed for that, I said. The story of Boy Niven, who lured seven or eight able-bodied seamen and marines into the woods of British Columbia, used to be a legend of the fleet. Yes, we were court-martialed to rights, said Pritchard. But we should have been t tried for murder if Boy Niven hadn't been unusually tough. He told us he had an uncle who'd give us land to farm, he said he was born at the back of Vancouver Island, and all the time the beggar was a balmy barnado orphan. But we believed him, said Pycroft. I did, you did, Patterson did. And who was the marine that married the coconut woman afterward, uh, him with the mouth? Oh, Jones, spit kit Jones. I haven't thought of him in years, said Pritchard. Yes, Spit Kid believed it, and George Ancy and Moon. We were very young and very curious, but loving a trustful to a degree, said Pycroft. Remember when he told us to walk in single file for fear of bears? Remember, Pye, when he hopped about in that bog full of ferns and sniffed and said he could smell the smoke of his uncle's farm? 
and all the time it was a dirty little outlying uninhabited island. We walked round it in a day and come back to our boat lying on the beach. A whole day Boy Niven kept us walking in circles looking for his uncle's farm. He said his uncle was compelled by the law of the land to give us a farm. But don't get hot, Pritch, we believed, said Pycroft. He's been reading books. He only did it to get a run ashore and have himself talked of. A day and a night, eight of us, following Boy Niven round an uninhabited island in the Vancouver archipelago. Then the picket came for us, and a nice pack of idiots we looked. What did you get for it? Hopper asked. Heavy thunder with continuous lightning for two hours. Thereafter, sleet squalls, a confused sea, and cold, unfriendly weather till conclusion accrues, said Pycroft. It was only what we expected, but what we felt, and I assure you, Mr. Rupert, even a sailor man has a heart to break, was being told that we able seamen and promising marines had misled Boy Niven. Yes, we poor back-of-the-landers were supposed to have misled him. He rounded on us, of course, and got off easy. Except for what we gave him in the steering flat when we came out of the cells. Heard anything of him lately, Pye? Signal boatswain in the Channel Fleet, I believe, Mr. L. L. Niven is. And Nancy died of fever in Benin, Pritchard mused. So what come to Moon? Spit kid we know about. Moon? Moon, now where did I last? Oh, yes, when I was in the Palladium, I met Quigley at Bunraka Station. He told me Moon had run when the Astrid sloop was cruising among the South Seas three years back. He always showed signs of being a Mormonastic beggar. Yes, he slipped off quietly, and they hadn't had a time to chase him round the islands, even if the navigating officer had been equal to the job. Well, wasn't he? said Hooper. Not so. According to Quigley, the Astrid spent half of her commission romping up the beach like a she-turtle, and the other half hatching turtle's eggs on the top of numerous beaches. <laughs> when she was docked at Sydney, her copper looked like Aunt Mariah's washing on the line, and her midship frames were sprung. The commander swore the dockyard had done it all in the poor thing on the slips. They do do strange things at sea, Mr. Hooper. Ah, I'm not a taxpayer, said Hooper, and opened a fresh bottle. The sergeant seemed to be one who had a difficulty in dropping subjects. How oh, it all come back, don't it, he said. Why, Moon must have had sixteen years' service before he ran. It takes him at all ages. Look at, uh, you know, said Pycroft. Who, I asked or a serviceman within eighteen months of his pension, is the party you're thinking of, said Pritchard. A warrant whose name begins with a V, isn't it? About in a way of putting it, we can't say he actually did desert, Pycroft suggested. Oh, no, said Pritchard. It was only permanent absence up country without leaf, that was all. Up country, said Hooper. Did they circulate his description? What for? said Pritchard, most impolitely. Well, because deserters are like columns in the war. 
They don't move away from the line, you see. I've known a chap caught at Salisbury that way, trying to get to Nyasa. They tell me, but of course I don't know, that they don't ask questions on the Nyasa Lake flotilla up there. I've heard of a P&O quartermaster in full command of an armed launch there. Do you think Click had gone up that way? Pritchard asked. Oh, there's no saying. He was sent up to Bloemfontein to take over some Navy ammunition left up in the fort. We know he took it over and saw it into the trucks. Then there was no more click then or thereafter. Four months ago it transpired, and thus the Cassius Belly stands at present, said Pycroft. What were his marks? said Hooper again. Does the railway get a reward for returning them then? said Pritchard. If I did, you suppose I'd talk about it? Hooper retorted angrily. You seem so very interested, said Pritchard with equal crispness. Why is he called Click? I asked to tide over an uneasy little break in the conversation. The two men were staring at each other fixedly. Oh, because of an ammunition hoist carrying away, said Pycroft. And it carried away four of his teeth on the lower port side, wasn't it, Pritch? The substitutes which he bought weren't screwed home in a manner of saying. When he talked fast, they used to lift a little on the bedplate, hence, click. They called him a superior man, which is what we'd call a long, black-haired, genteely-speaking, half-bred beggar on the lower deck. Four false teeth on the lower left jaw, said Hooper, his hand in his waistcoat pocket. What tattoo marks? Look here, began Pritchard, half-rising. I'm sure we're very grateful to you as a gentleman for your hospitality, but perhaps we may have made an error in... I looked at Pycroft for aid. Hooper was crimsoning rapidly. If the fat marine now occupying the forecastle will kindly bring his status quo to an anchor yet once more, we may be able to talk like gentlemen, not to say friends, said Pycroft. He regards you, Mr. Hooper, as an emissary of the law. I only wish to observe that when a gentleman exhibits such a peculiar, or shall I rather say, such a blooming curiosity in identification marks as our friend here, uh, Mr. Pritchard, I interposed, I'll take all responsibility for Mr. Hooper. And you'll apologize all around, said Pycroft. You're a rude little man, Pritch. What was I? he began wavering. I don't know, and I don't care. Apologize. The giant looked round bewildered and took our little hands in his vast grip one by one. I was wrong, he said meekly as a sheep. My suspicions was unfounded, Mr. Hooper. I apologize. You did quite right to look out for your own end of the line, said Hooper. I'd have done the same with a gentleman I didn't know, you see. If you don't mind, I'd like to hear a little more of your Mr. Vickery. It's safe with me, you see. Why did Vickery run? I began, but Pycroft's smile made me turn my question to, Who was she? She kept a little hotel at Haraki, near Auckland, said Pycroft. By God! roared Pritchard, slapping his hand on his leg. Not Mrs. Bathurst. Pycroft nodded slowly. 
and the sergeant called all the powers of darkness to witness his bewilderment. So far as I could get at it, Mrs. B was the lady in question. But Click was married, cried Pritchard, and had a fifteen-year-old daughter. He's shown me your photograph, setting that aside, so to say. Have you ever found these little things make much of a difference? Cause I haven't. Good Lord alive and watchin'. Mrs. Bathurst. Then, with another roar, You can say what you please, Pye, but you don't make me believe it was any of her fault. She wasn't that. If I was going to say what I please, I'd begin by calling you a silly ox and work up to the higher pressures at leisure. I'm trying to say solely what transpired. Moreover, for once you're right, it wasn't her fault. Well, you couldn't have made me believe it if it had been, was the answer. Such faith in a sergeant of marines interested me greatly. Never mind that, I cried. Tell me what she was like. She was a widow, said Pycroft, left so very young and never re-spliced. She kept a little hotel for warrants and non-comps close to Auckland, and she always wore black silk and her neck. You ask what she was like, Pritchard broke in. Let me give you an instance. I was at Auckland first in 97, at the end of the Moroccan's commission. And as I'd been promoted, I went up with the others. She used to look after us all, and she never lost by it, not a penny. Pay me now, she'd say, or settle later. I know you won't let me suffer. Send the money from home if you like. Why, gentlemen all, I tell you I've seen that lady take her own gold watch and chain off her neck in the bar and pass it to a bosun who'd come ashore without his ticker and had to catch the last boat. I don't know your name, she said, but when you're done with it, you'll find plenty that know me on the front. Send it back by one of them. And it was worth thirty pounds if it was worth half a crown. A little gold watch pie with a blue monogram at back. But as I was saying, in those days, she kept a beer that agreed with me. Slits, it was called. Huh. One day and another, I must have punished a few good bottles of it while we was in the bay. Coming ashore every night or so. Chaffing across the bar like once when we was alone. Mrs. B., I said, when next I call, I want you to remember that this is my particular, just as you're my particular. She'd let you go that far. Just as you're my particular, I said. Oh, thank you, Sergeant Pritchard, she says, and puts her hands up to the curl behind her ear. Remember that way she had pie? I think so, said the sailor. Yes, thank you, Sergeant Pritchard, she says. The least I can do is market for you in case you change your mind, and there's no great demand for it in the fleet, she said. But to make sure, I'll put it at the back of the shelf, and she snipped off a piece of her air ribbon with that old dolphin cigar cutter of the bar. Remember it, Pie? And she tied a bow round what was left, just four balls. That was 97. No, 96. In 98... I was in the resilient China station, full commission. In 1901, mark you, I was in the Carthusian back at Auckland Bay again. Of course, I went up to Miss B's with the rest of us to see how things was going. 
they were the same as ever. Remember that big tree on the pavement by the sidebar, Pie? I never said anything special. There was too many of us talking to her. But she saw me at once. That wasn't difficult, I ventured. Ah, oh, but wait. I was coming up to the bar when... Ada, she says to her niece, get me Sergeant Pritchard's particular. And, gentlemen all, I tell you, before I could shake hands with the lady, there were those four bottles of slits with her air ribbon in a bow round each of their necks, set down in front of me. And as she drew the cork, she looked at me under her eyebrows in that blindish way she had a looking. And, Sergeant Pritchard, she says, I do hope you haven't changed your mind about your particulars. That's the kind of woman she was after five years. I don't see her yet, somehow, said Hooper, but with sympathy. She, she never scrupled to feed a lame duck or set her foot on a scorpion at any time of her life, Pritchard added valiantly. That don't help me either. My mother's like that, for one. End of section four.